Alright guys, welcome back to another Magnus and Marcus show. So we're going to continue where we left off in part one of development as a young coach. So we're going to jump right back into the conversation. Um, John just ended with the story about Jerry Schumacher ra watching races. And I'm going to start off with uh, developing independence as a coach and how that applies and how we should translate into a partnership instead of uh, creating this dictatorship style of coaching. So hope you guys enjoy as always. If you guys have any comments, questions, suggestions, feel free to hit me or John up on Twitter. All right, guys, enjoy and take care. Exactly, exactly. I was talking actually yesterday to one of my uh, coaching friends, Priscilla Bailey, at uh, Cal Poly uh, San Luis Obispo, and she's like, thank God the day of coaching it's the easiest, easiest coaching day. Yes. Because it's all done. Yeah. Like you're just, you're just standing around and mm -hmm. and kind of been like, oh, just small chat, and that, yeah. that's about it. Yeah. Like everything else should be done at that point. It's and especially at this level, it's like that's how it is. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're fostering independence. Yes. If I could describe coaching in a in another kind of segue or uh, uh, paradigm, it's it's going from dependence to independence. Yes. We don't, bad coaches, not to call anyone bad, but they, they, they go the opposite way. Right. They create dependency on them. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is they create dependency because there's this fear of, well, I should be the only one that this athlete can coach and create that idea that I'm the only one this athlete can coach because that way they can never leave me. Right. They yes. are completely dependent yes. on me. Yes. Like, the ego-based coach, yes, let's say. We'll yeah. say the ego-based coach. I like that. So, I mean, that's what it is, is you create this dependence. And and it's it, it's almost a scary thing, especially from a young young coaches, is creating the opposite, independence. Right. You don't want them to have to come up to you and ask, oh, when should I do this? Yeah, when should I do yeah. that? Yeah. You know, it should be... How should I time my shoot? Double yeah. knot or single knot? Yeah. yeah. It's no. like, no. It's like you're trying to create independent athletes. Yeah. You know, I, I, I joke, but I'm like, I should feel good about sending, taking one of my college kids and being like, oh, you can go off to Stanford. I'd never do this, but yeah. Stanford by yourself and right. you'd be fine. Right, yeah. You know, it's like, it's the same. Well, that's the, that's the coaching strategy of Brother Ocolm in Kenya. Yep. I mean, he has, except for this most recent Olympiad, he had never been to an Olympics, never been to World Championships for the multitude of Olympic medalists and world record holders he's coached. He's never, he just watches on tape delay the race from his home <laughs> in Kenya. And yet he sends, you know, Rashida yep. and all these people off to their home. And his main thing is he is coaching people to be able to cope on their own. If you're not, you know, nurturing a coping mechanism, you're really not doing your job. But it, and again, he is another great example of someone who doesn't necessarily have, who didn't come into coaching athletics as his primary objective soccer guy yep. you know was a missionary in Kenya which has understood the relationship component in that culture and community and is able to propel you know all those athletes to that next level and the you know world dominance they've enjoyed for the last 20 30 years but again it's because he's coached that coping ability in every one of those people and that's really where we got you know you get to because that is exactly it's the most fun part of a track meet is just saying, hey, are you good? Do you need anything? No, I'm good. I'm fine, coach. You know, I mean, I always joke with my athletes. On race day, all I am is your chauffeur. Yep. I, my job is just to make sure you get to the race on time and just double check to make sure you have all the necessities, spikes, singlet, bib numbers, wristband. 
and that you know when your race begins. And that's it. That's all, I mean, that's all I'm doing because we've done all the preemptive, you know, tactic discussions, we all the preemptive physiological, you know, yep. psychological preparations. We've all done that before you even got on the plane. I tell people, if we don't know what you're going to aim to do before you get on the plane or before you get in the car to go down to the meet, then we might as well scratch you because we haven't done a, the, a right job. Yep, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, I almost see it as like an insecurity. Like, yeah. it's um, especially when you're you're younger and just getting into it. It's almost like this. You you feel this need to do something. Yes. Like, and that's why you see coaches, you know, surrounding their athletes, giving last minute instructions, putting more stuff in their head. Um, from a, you know, I always I'm a science guy, but from a psychological standpoint, I like to see it as like. You have your, you know, your your automatic subconscious execution, and then you have your your non-automatic conscious execution. And if if we do stuff subconsciously, automatically, we're way more efficient. We just get it done. We just let our brain do the, you know, do what it's supposed to do. It's called flow. Yeah, yeah. exactly. In state of flow. You're you in you get in that, and I think the more and more instruction and the more and more things we put into someone last minute, it it just takes them out of that. You know, well, it's even like when you study for an exam, they've shown that cramming yeah. it, is actually a, a, a limited, a deterrent from doing well on the exam. Exactly. You need you need to be able to have this emotional decompression before the exam. But if you're cramming to the last minute, your brain's not actually able to process all that new information you're going in because it's competing with the old root information that's been in there from when you studied for two weeks prior. You know, so when everyone, some like. Like, please don't say, oh, coach, I'm stressed about this test. I go, you know what? You need to study up until this drop-dead point, and then you need to go to bed early. You need to just not study at all. I mean, because anything you do beyond that drop-dead point is going to be a deterrent to actually you being able to perform at your best on that given day. I mean, it's the idea of saying, like, oh, well, yeah, you're in a really fast heat. Okay, well, okay, the day before the race, we just need to do a really quick four-by-mile repeat session just to cram in a little extra fitness. <laughs> And you know we never would do that because we know yeah. about the you know principles of stress adaptation and recovery. So the same thing psychologically, it's like oh well, day before okay, I mean if you know again big things changes like if you're on a cross country course and there's a big change or the footing's really awful, you make mention of it. If there's some procedural logistical change, yes, you do that. But continuing just to you know be an ego-based coach where you're doing things to make you feel good yes rather than identifying and recognizing that you need to do what's in the athlete's best interest and know that person and know if they need a little hand holding or if they need just complete autonomy or if they just need you to be light-hearted and joke around and keep them distracted i mean here's a great example yesterday we had a lady run at the um the 10k at uh, the ncaa west regional meet at night and so during the day what we do we went to the state capitol in austin and when the state capitol sat for you know a couple you know minutes in the house of representatives and in the senate and just went around and looked at that building and at monuments and you know it's got a little history of the, the city of austin you know she was on her feet for like two and a half hours and she ran a great race later that evening you know she ran you know she was ranked 41st coming in ran 28th i mean nothing to write home about she didn't fall off national but for her she ran 100 inspired executed really well be because i know her and we need to go out and we need to get her mind no. off yeah. the race before other 10ks we've gone bowling you know in the middle of the afternoon 
Yep. And that's just because that's what she needs is that little bit of distraction about, hey, this isn't the biggest deal in the world. I'm not sitting in my hotel room all day, watching TV, getting myself wound up. I need to, I need to just be a normal human being and then go show and then show up to the track and go do my thing. Other people are different, but that's where again knowing your athlete yes. and doing what's going to ultimately help them the best psychologically on day of is more important than going over and being like, well, hey, here's everyone else's PR in your race and in your heat in the 400 and the 800 and the 15 and okay, here's this, this, this. I mean, it's just too much, too much to keep track of for any one person. You're gonna overwhelm them. You know? Yes, exactly. I mean, I always, I always really, you know, when <laughs> that light bulb moment in my head and my coaching. Uh, career went off is is uh, I remember I took it back to my high school days and I remember running a a 1200 on the DMR my senior year and I ran 256 which at that time was mind-blowing for me um, and I, I and literally three hours before that we snuck into the high school which was still in session and just goofed around as stupid high school kids would. And we were, you know, jogging through the halls and had to run away from some people. And then, you know, two hours later, I ran 2.56, and we ended up running the, which that year was the nation-leading DMR time. Yeah. And it wasn't even, you know, our A team. Right. Because I was in my leg. And it's like, you know, looking back on that, I'm like, I remember at some point, maybe a year or two later, I'm like, dude, like, I ran fast. And I didn't, like, I was running from principles yeah you know yeah. <laughs> this wasn't this wasn't the the pre-race thing and no. it's like you know you get in that set that mindset and it's like what it, it but it's exactly what you said it's what you need what i needed right and i remember when i was uh running post-collegially a little bit and started running better in in some road stuff and i remember me and my friend uh moses were were traveling around we always had interesting travel things but I started running better and we were traveling to all these cool places and we were like dude like we go to these cool places but all we do is see the tracks and the hotel and the hotel yeah, yeah. and we're like we're like let's check some things out yeah, you know yeah. let's, make some memories. let's make some memories so we started doing stuff and we, you know I started running uh, a lot better to like strain my hamstring but and then Moses that year made world champs and was a semi-finalist at worlds and I remember the race leading up to it or one of the races leading up to it where he ran 145 in Europe you know we were we were walking around town checking out like churches and, and stuff like that and we we're just doing yeah. stupid things yeah. it's like and, and you know that's one of the message I've I've really tried to give to my college kids is you get this tendency to be like you know, oh, I'm gonna save up all my energy and I'm gonna right. sit in a right. hotel room. It's like, right. it's like, well, you know, when when you killed that that four by mile workout, exactly. you know, yeah. last week, yeah. did you do that? They're like, no, man, I was I was going to class yeah. and then I was and doing this, work, and then I yeah, did this, and, it's and, like, and then like, oh, it's like light bulb goes off and like, yeah, <laughs> like. You know, why would we we kill that and then go to the race day and be like, oh, you know what? I'm going to try this completely different a, approach, approach yeah. and just sit there. And, yeah. you know, it's it's funny. I was it, I was related back to turns, but it's like if you're sitting there laying in the bed in a specific position for hours, it's like your muscles adapt to it. And mm -hmm. they change their resting length, yeah. and that's like it. And then yeah. you get up and you start moving around, and you're like, oh, I'm kind of stiff. Right. It's like, why'd that happen? I've just been resting. 
Right. Well, it's the same if you went and sat on a plane for 10 hours and went to Europe and got off and jogged. You're like, oh, this sucks. Yeah. Like, that's what you just did. Right. So, no, we're the same way. I mean, we're, I mean, actually, my guys right now are walking over to a movie theater about, you know, almost a mile away to go uh, go catch a Tomorrowland because they're like, oh, nice. we want to do something else. Right. And, you know, that's... Yeah, and I think, and that's... You know, it's not to harp or not to criticize you know, programs or coaches who have that mindset because it's a trickle-down effect. Like when you, you know, the business of sport, when you're a professional athlete, that's your job. You're a professional, so the business is high performance, and, and you know, people want to adopt that business-like mindset into maybe the collegiate ranks, and that's all well and good. Maybe at some schools where the pressure is a little bit higher, the resources are a lot greater, and X, Y, Z, but. You know, 90%, 95% of the collegiate coaching system does not have a $5.5 million annual budget. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, even majority of post-collegiate programs now don't have that type of budget. Um, but the reality is, though, it's like, you know, we always look to, we're example-driven, and we learn by examples about who's successful. So we say, yep. oh, you know, this group is successful collegiate ranks this athlete's successful at the post-feature ranks, this group's successful here, let's do it, let's replicate that model because it brought them success, but their situation might be really counter your situation. You know, and getting back to even, you know, when we started off, before we went on the myriad of different tangents here, is, you know, for a young coach getting into coaching, is being able to find your voice and being able to understand what really coaching in life ultimately is about. It's you know, my perception is going in somewhere and making it better than you found it. Because you don't know how long you're going to be in that position. They may cut the program. Your AD may come up and be like, hey, Steve, you're a great coach. You guys have done a great job. But we, the athletic department just decided to cut this program. And you can't be, like, resentful and upset. Be like, oh, I wasted 10 years of my life here. And da -da -da. Did you make the place, the space better, better than when it arrived? Yes. Well, then it was no waste because you impacted people for a decade. Or, you know, you might be an assistant and your head coach comes in and just be like, hey, man, you're a great coach, but you just don't, you know, jive with the philosophy here or I just don't feel connected to you. You know, I think the world of you, but I just don't think it's the right fit for you. I'm going to let you go. you, you got to be able to take that and say it's okay. But did, you know, the end value is not how many champions or school records you coach and then be resentful about it. It's like, did you make that culture and that team or the athletes you work with, did you make that sphere better? And if so, you can walk away when you're dismissed or walk away if you just want to walk away from coaching at that level or at the sport period and hold your head up high. And I think that's just the, the message to hit home is as a young coach, just go wherever you start off, start off coaching and just work your butt off to make it better. And yes, coach people to be better in PR and win championships. But if you do that, people will take notice. That was the whole point of Steve's blog was he felt there wasn't enough sharing, exchanging of scientific ideas as it pertained to running. And so he said, I'm just going to make that space about sharing better. And people took note of, hey, this guy's sharing and being transparent and it's make, helping all of us. That's kind of cool. Let's bring this guy here. Let's help this guy get there. You know, and that's what we hope to do with this pod initially is share these concepts and ideas and our experience and our perception from our experience and hopefully make every everyone better in some little way shape or form exactly i mean that and that's what coaching is about and i mean i <laughs> i joke because we we've experienced coaching at every level now and uh 
you know, people ask, like, I, I think there's this misnomer when you get in. I mean, I certainly had it. It's like, oh, man, like, high school's going to be this way. College is going to be this way. And then ultimate is pro. And yeah, that's that's yeah. this way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think they have this misnomer of, like, well, my enjoyment out of coaching is going to increase as the better yeah. athlete I get. Yeah. And, and the reality is coaching is coaching. Yeah. And it's all developing. And you get that same sense of excitement, that same butterflies of seeing a kid, high schooler run, go from 440 to 430 as you do the college kid going 405 to 4 flat or something like that. Well, you know it's big for that person. Exactly. That's what what gets me butterflies. I I don't get butterflies anymore about going to a USA championship. I don't get butterflies about going to a big, high-performance, you know, invite. What I get butterflies is seeing, like, hey, this girl ran 17.30 last year in the 5k and now she just ran 16.30. Oh my god that's incredible yes. for her. Now 16.30 is nothing to write home about you know on the grand scale of competitiveness but for her that was a huge step forward and that was so exciting. I mean all the work, time, and energy worth it and I get super duper pumped about it. I mean I can say we had a, a gal at the Portland State team who ran her first 10k and you know, on the track, because she was a you know a burnt out you know athlete who just didn't was thought she was middle distance, but I was like, hey, you know what, you're probably more of a 10k runner, but she was a little bit reticent to move up, and you know she'd been running really really mediocre times, really frustrated about it in the 15.8 because ultimately it's not who she was, was that type of runner because she was out on a really small non-competitive team in high school, so she thought that's who she was, and then she moves up and she runs the 10. And her first 10K out, she runs like 39 flat or, or 38.30. I mean, not that crazy fast. But it was enough to get her qualified to the conference meet for us and enough to give her the sense of identity of, man, I ran it the right way, even paced the whole way, 94s per lap, boom, 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 boom. And she felt great about it. And like when I heard, because unfortunately I wasn't there to watch the race because I had another meet, but when I heard, got the message back from you know, the, assistant, the other assistant coaches, athletes, I jumped up the air and went, Whoa, oh, I feel like the best coach in the world. Okay. Got this gal to, you know, not just because she ran 38.30, but because she has this new sense of identity yes. and buy-in that she didn't have before because she was on the fringe about, you know, almost thinking about quitting running and quitting the team. And now she's like fully bought in. She's like, coach, when we start in summer training, when's summer training going on? <laughs> and like, that is the more exciting thing for me than saying, you know, maybe someone running you know, a gal running 4.10 in the 1500 or something who's ran 408, 409 many, many years, but ran 410. You know, I think that's where we're, you know, coming from and encouraging you as a young coach or even an older coach listening to this to hopefully be re-engaged and uh, revitalized uh, to, uh, you know, think about in your coaching practice moving forward. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> I think that's a, a really, really good point because uh, <laughs> it's it's funny that the, the enjoyment is is uh, completely different. I mean, I've told this story before, but I mean, I've had some really sucky walk-on kids come in and, you know, run 445-ish in high school and somehow make it on our team. And, you know, I can't tell you that the team-wide enjoyment when someone goes from, like, we had a kid who came in with, I think, a 411.15 PR, 
hundred PR this year and runs four oh one in the fifteen hundred and everyone's off the walls yeah. going crazy. And you'd think it was like someone went sub four in mile yeah. and broke our school record or something. But it's no, it's like because what it is is you see the investment, you see someone who bought in, and you see the dividends pay off. And I think that's the key to coaching, as regardless of the level, is that same thing happens to different degrees. Mm-hmm. And that that is the point I think we're getting across is that there is no no real difference. Right. And I think that's something that as a young coach is you you kind of put this uh, the elites either elite on the high school level yeah, whether they're yeah. you know mm-hmm. NXN champs mm-hmm. or at the college level mm-hmm. NCAA all Americans or professional level go mm-hmm. whatever your your pedestal is you put that that up there and the same thing maybe segueing a little bit is you put the same coaching ideas on that right. pedestal right. Yeah. as like I remember when I was starting to learn as 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 a coach is it's like oh you know the ultimate is the people who coach really fast people right. to run really fast yes. and it's it's this trickle down where it's like oh you know uh, this this national champ did this so even though i'm coaching high school kids i'm going to take the same same concept and and do the same thing right. and i think that's that's something where if you if you go back to the root cause and root idea of why are you doing this which is athletic or development it's like you have to step back right. um not to take this in a completely different direction, but I was, I had someone on, I posted an article on Twitter about the Australian triathlons oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, being kind of going through a, the Aussies going through a, a bit of a down, down couple years in their triathlon ranks because they switched to a centralized coaching system where it's like national coaching, like everyone goes to the centralized right. location. Yeah. One voice, and that's it, versus, you know, the U.S., which is having a lot of success in triathlon, doing a more, you know, support coaches, same with Great Brenton with the Brownlee brothers, kind of supporting coaches and and not having that centralized thing. And someone shot back and was like, yeah, that's true, but, you know, the Australian junior squad is, like, really good in the centralized thing. And my retort was, and and you, for it's getting better now, but for decades you saw Australian juniors run really fast on the track and not yeah. make it because they had kind of a centralized track program too. Um, but I don't think it's that that hard to get people to run fast when you're young. Because no. if you throw, I mean, I'm kind of an example of this. If you throw 100 miles a week at someone who's relatively talented, they're going to run really fast. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not that hard to develop a junior to get them to run really quick. Yeah, it's more just about buy-in. Yes. You know, it's more about the, getting the kid just to be consistent and just do it every day instead of, you know, eating uh, McDonald's and Doritos every day, you know? Right. And I, I think that's, like, I think one of the consequences and one of the things that you see, you know, a lot of juniors running fast or high school kids running fast now, but I think one of the consequences sometimes is they're doing that because someone has taken a pro model and copied it exactly and been like, oh, I saw Alan Webb do all this, so I'm going to I'm gonna do this. Right. And I yeah. think it, for young coaches, especially high school coaches, is the switching it to a developmental model where you're going to bring this kid along um, is key and staying away from that temptation to um, <laughs> squeeze everything you want right. out of them is, uh, is something I'd like to... To get across to as many coaches as I could. 
Yeah, because ultimately it's the long tail vision. I mean, yes. You know, you're sacrificing the you know the short term success before the long tail dominance. Because it always just feels a lot more fun when you go into a championship or you go into whatever pinnacle about peak performance you're uh, you know aiming towards, and you you are very very confident that this person this athlete you've worked with is going to be highly competitive and be able to do xyz versus if you squeeze everything out of them and then one year they all of a sudden they pop off this great time and they pop or they just all of a sudden as a freshman win a conference title or win a district title or a state title then you're like oh yeah it's gonna be easy for the next couple of years just they're just gonna keep doing it and it's very very rare i tell people it's the hardest thing in this sport is to replicate success and replicate progression and ability. I mean, and you see that with everyone with the ups and downs. I mean, our girlfriend, Alan Webb, is a good example of that. Mary Kane now is an example yep. of this. You know, it's not that they're not talented, they're not gifted, they're not doing everything in their power, and, and their coaches aren't doing everything in their power to get them to continue to improve. It's just very tough to sustain at a really high performance level year in and year out. And that's why you have to tip your hat to people like, you know, Bernard Lagat. You have to tip your hat to people like, uh, you know, Shannon Roberry. You know, even had a down year here and there. I mean, because they've been able to sustain themselves at a competitive level for a very consistent amount of time. And, you know, circling back and just getting back to, again, the X's and the O's, it's just like anything in life. You find your style, you find your voice. I mean, I always tell people, young people try on a lot of hats. They have this look or that look. Young coaches are going to try on a lot of different approaches. They're going to do this, they're going to do that. You know, they're going to find a foundation about where it's in a platform where to speak from and quote from, but always continue to learn and continue to advance and continue to further tweak their mythology and their knowledge based on the different types of athletes they work with. And you have that open mindset throughout your whole practice. As a coach, you're going to be, you know, a really uh, evolved and, re and really talented, quote unquote, talented, really knowledgeable person. But when you, as soon as you get that fixed mindset about it's always going to be like this, because this guru said that, or this is the way that that person trained, you know, you're kind of you know, dead in the water. And one of the best examples about how to think critically and think differently is actually, uh, came from a podcast I listened to uh, that I think Tim Ferriss did with Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin yep. is, you know, the music quote unquote producer. He, you know, he sits down and he says, so you're a music producer. He goes, if you want to call me that, and even then, it's like, what is, I, was, I thought, well, you call me a coach. I'm like, you're a coach. Well, if you want to call me that. Because I think, you know, it's labeling you as something. But the Ruben's process of how to get the most creative energy and most creative enthusiasm out of every artist he worked with is what makes him a great producer or guru, even if you will. Because all he's doing is shifting the, the artist's mindset and shifting the artist's motivation to be the best and most highly creative they can be at that time. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do with athlete-centered and, you know, uh, coaching is trying to get the most out of that athlete in that time with the, you know, constraints that we have around um, working with them in the settings that we do. In which everyone's constraints are different. High school constraints, college constraints, post-collegiate constraints. There's all a different myriad of constraints. I mean, I'm reading this book, The Beautiful Constraint, right now, and talking to Steve about it, showed him it before we flipped on the pod, and it, you know, it, it allows you to see your limit, limitants in whatever situation you're in, not as an obstacle to success, but as the trampoline or the 
the entity that propels you to success because you're forced to work around that. And you're forced to just say, okay, how do I create a successful or highly competent or highly engaging situation in spite of X? You know, and that turns on that creative and that critical thinking mindset, which is so important in coaching practice. Exactly. I think think that's a a great point is flipping your constraints and using them. Like, that's what it is. I mean, uh, I always give the example of, so we're, we're in Houston, and everybody who ever asks anybody says, oh, yeah, no, you can't be a distance runner in Houston. You can't, yeah. can't it's train hot, there. It's, it's humid. It's there's hot. too much pollution. Yeah. yeah. They, yeah. Just, they just no list, hills, it, no list it all off. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is they're talking about three months in the summer, and the rest of it is, you know, pretty right. nice. Um but, you know, they, they, they create that, and it's like, well, you know, I've, I've coached people who made world championship teams there. You know, well, a good friend at Rice, Jim Bevan, has coached, you know, marathoners, Becky Wade, who's yeah. run 230 there. Yeah. It's like bulk of training in Houston. Like, it's, it's you can do it. Frank Shorter used to train in, in Florida. Right. But, you know. Well, Jim McClashey used to have the it, Nike Houston group down yep. there. That was highly competitive exactly. in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Exactly. But it's, it's we've, we've flipped it around. Is You know, our mindset is like our humid and heat training is our altitude training. Yep. Yep. It's like we're going to be ready to go. And the other thing we've done is one of the great things that I learned from my high school coach actually is, you know, when they come back from the summer, we do, you know, a five, six, seven mile tempo run. And then, you know, the first cool day we get, we do the same tempo run on the same course. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden people are running. I mean, well, I'll give you an example. In high school, like we, my senior year, we did a 10 mile tempo progression. And I think I ran like 56 something, right. okay. you know, a month later when it cooled down. I ran like 52 <laughs> something. It was the same effort. Yeah. Same sure. exact effort. And at the time, as a high school, I'm thinking like, oh, I just got really, yeah. really fit. Oh, I just got, yeah, all, all these, of a sudden. All these workouts yeah. have been killing it the last yeah. month, like coming off base and, you know, talking to my high school coach after. He's like, yeah, man, we, we did that on purpose because I knew everyone was going to kill it. And yeah. then you get that confidence. But we do the same thing, you know, in college is we'll do, we'll, you know, we'll set it up, yeah. you know, and cross. It works perfectly right yeah. and it's 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 flipping that constraint where it lets like now it's an advantage for mm-hmm. us you know and right. it's i think that's that's what you have to do it's right. a constraints model and the you know the other way i see constraints too is like you know with uh with hills like we do a lot of it forced us to do a lot of crazy things that i would have never come up with right. we have uh you know uh, when i was coaching high school again we came up with all these different circuits to do that got us that same sort of strength component and uh and noticed a lot of uh well i'm again science junkie but back then i remember taking we uh went on this experiment where i measured lactate levels on a standard thing and then we did this we went through this phase of doing hill circuits that were incredibly got lactate incredibly high right but, you know, normally when we did stuff on the track that got lactate incredibly high, we'd start seeing our aerobic ability right, decrease. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But with our hill circuits, our aerobic ability was still there because right, yeah. it was highly aerobic hill circuit at the same time yeah. as jacking up lactate levels. Yeah. And it just, it, it unintentionally, some degrees, gave us this new, new uh, weapon in our arsenal to use. So it's like those constraints allow you to grow as a coach because they challenge you if you are open enough 
to change your norms, right? right? And, Get and out of that fix. And, you know, circling back here full circle, you know, you look at the constraints of really getting a job in coaching is not about applying and having a good resume. It's forcing you to figure out how to create relationships with people and be a better you know, people person and invest in those relationships, not only with the athletes, but other coaches. And so if you do that, you can be certain you're gonna work your way up or work your way, I'd rather say rather than up, but into a situation that is the right fit for you eventually. And it's just figuring out what that situation is going to be. A good friend of ours, Danny, ours, Danny Mackey, the head yep. um, coach of the Brooks Beasts, he applied for over you know 200 coaching jobs and was denied every single one of them for six, seven years. He worked in the footwear industry and in, you know performance and development in footwear while coaching some people on the side, you know further advancing his own. Uh, knowledge on physiology. He's a sports and exercise science uh, master's from Colorado State. You know, and he's a good guy and a good friend and knows his stuff. But he finally got a break with you know jumpstarting the Brooks Beast Post Collegiate Program because it was just the right place at the right time and he had the right relationships. And it's not something to be like, oh, it's a game stacked, it's rigged, it's this and that. It's like no, it, it's really important to see that the the beauty of this constraint is it at the end of the day coaching and getting into coaching and getting in the right space in coaching is about relationships. So continue to invest, continue to treat people with kindness, compassion, dignity, because you never know what, you know, junior administrator is that you work with at your coaching job at Appalachian State, you know, is then going to become the AD at, you know, Kentucky 10 years down the road. And you guys had a great relationship because you guys both bonded over professional bowling for some reason you know it, it, I mean that's really how the game works so just be patient you know as a young coach I wanted to be right in division one right in at the highest level do it immediately and that's just not the way it works and now even as an older coach it's like well what space do I want to occupy and where situation do I want to be in that's we're going to have a good balance of you know relationship development athlete development personal development as well as time to you know be able to live a life that is worth living so those are all critical questions to think you know and see as you make that decision about how to progress and where to kind of insert yourself in the coaching landscape exactly and i think it's I, I think to sum it up it's it's don't get caught in that rat race of being like this is the top, this is the second yeah. level, this yeah. is the third <laughs> yeah. level, yeah. this is the fourth level, right. and I have to, you know, I got to get in there. And I think that's the easy fallback to, to kind of uh, kind of go to, you know, one of... Uh, yeah, I mean, like John Hayes, for example, yeah. Leo Manzano's coach, he's a 20-year NCAA coaching veteran. And yeah. he coached at Texas, Northern Arizona, Air Force. I mean, the, and now he's not in collegiate coaching, he's working with Leo. I mean, does he want to get back into collegiate coaching? Maybe. Who knows? But he, he's just at a different space in life. You'd think this guy who's coached these big-time programs, you know, is just, oh, yeah, I'm always going to go do 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 But he, things come up in life, different opportunities, different things with family, and you just got to know, like, coaching's coaching at the end of the day, you know, and get outside this kind of pecking order mentality. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like when we talked to Vern Gambetta a couple, yeah. couple podcasts ago. I always like it when he says... He talks about all the things he does, and he's like, man, you know, part of me wishes, you know, I never left that, that high, high school, school job. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he sincerely means no, it. No, he does, yeah. And, and, and I think that's, that's the point that is, is sometimes missed by people, is that 
you know, it's not it's not about this pecking order that we get into. It's about finding what fits with you, um, doing a good job at it. And in terms of, you know, getting jobs and stuff, one of my good mentors always said, like, do your best job, develop people, treat people well, mm-hmm. treat them like people. Don't don't take it as a business. Right. Take your ego out of it, yeah. and you'll be like, you're gonna find a spot. Yeah. Like it's gonna work. Mm-hmm. Like if you do the opposite, like. If you're one of those guys who, you know, and well, we'll say it in the college coaching job, if you're, you know, putting down other coaches to get recruits and stuff like that. Yeah, ooh, it's, negative recruiting. Yeah. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It's, it's going to catch up to you. Yeah, it is. It always does because yeah. in the end, it's track and field or whatever area you're in. It's yeah. a small area. Yeah, it's a small sorority and fraternity. I mean, another quick example before we sign off here, uh, you know, uh, my good buddy, Nate uh, Hewell, who was at Southern Utah and who got fired from Southern Utah because the university has a nepotism clause and his uncle's the head coach there. You know, he got out, he was out of college coaching and then he, you know, found out he had like a stage four cancerous tumor in his face, you know, last fall, you know, he got operated on. I mean, life looked bleak, you know, life looked, oh man, it's the worst it can be. And he's a good coach, he knows what he's doing, but now full circle, he just, became the head cross-country and assistant track coach at Idaho State University in the Big Sky Conference. And, I mean, he went from, you know, 10 months ago being out of the coaching world and then getting diagnosed with cancer and now getting a dream position for him. And, he, you know, I'm so happy for him. He's going to do amazing work there with that, you know, those young men and women. He's going to do because he's so passionate about what he does. But, he, you know, despite all those barriers and obstacles that are out of his control, he still found his space, you know, and to, you know, take Mr. Hill's example at, to heart because if you continue, and he's an awesome person, you know, people love him to death, and he just treats people so well, you're gonna find a good situation, guaranteed. Exactly, I think that's a that's a perfect spot to end on, John. Yeah. Well, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this uh, face-to-face meeting, and uh, watch out, <laughs> more stuff to come. Thanks. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks. Thanks, Steve.